0: seated. Good morning. It is good to see you here this morning, and I add my voice to a happy Mother's Day, a good Mother's Day for you. And thank you, Alice, for sharing with us. That's a great testimony, and it really lends itself to the passage we're going to look at today in John chapter 15 as we conclude a short series through the Easter season and now just some select passages out of the Gospel of John. When my children were in grade school, they would have something called Parents' Day, where different parents would come in and present what they did in life, you know, like firefighters, policemen, doctors, dentists, store owners, and that kind of thing. They never invited me. I don't know why, but I never got to present. They didn't want to discourage the children, I guess, but... uh, but uh, I think now it's, it's called Career Day or something, uh, as uh, parents come in and share. And I think the point is, is to encourage children to think about their future and think about preparing for their future and uh, to give them some real-life episodes. Well, I read about one father who came in to present uh, on uh, Career Day, and he didn't talk about his job. This is what he said. He told the kids, and I'm quoting him. Value this time in your life, kids, because this is the time in your life when you still have choices and it goes by so quickly. When you're a teenager, you think you can do anything and you do. Your 20s are a blur. Your 30s, you raise your family, you make a little money, and you think to yourself, what happened to my 30s? In your 40s, you grow a little bit of a pot belly, you grow another chin. The music starts to get too loud, and one of your old girlfriends from high school becomes a grandmother. Your 50s, you have minor surgery. You call it a procedure, but it's surgery. In your 60s, you have major surgery. The music is still loud, but it doesn't bother you anymore because you can't hear it anyway. In your 70s, you and your spouse retire to Fort Lauderdale. You start eating supper at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. You had lunch around 10 in the morning. You spend most of your time wandering around the malls looking for the ultimate in soft yogurt and muttering, how come the kids don't call? And uh, by your 80s, you've had a pretty massive health failure, and you end up babbling something to your nurse, and you start calling her mama. Any questions? Unquote. Well, with that jaded view of life through the decades, I recognize I'm closer to Fort Lauderdale than I am to raising children in my 20s. Uh, but uh, the aspect is, is uh, that's a very jaded view of life, and it actually was not a real thing. That was Billy Crystal playing a part in a movie, uh, but it re- does bring the point up is what does it matter? What does this life mean? Is there meaning to our lives? Does it count? We all want to think our lives count, and for every mother here with small children, we recognize that you want your children's life to count also. And so are we living a productive life, and how do we measure that? What yardsticks or measurements do we apply uh, to what really counts in this life? And the danger, of course, is, is we count our lives by the measurement that society and our culture gives us or our peer groups give us, but really what is the measure? Our measure, is it measured by God alone? And I believe it is, and I believe his word teaches it. So what does a productive life look like? Today we come to this passage in John chapter 15, very familiar to probably many of you. And it's uh, right in the middle of a long teaching session that Jesus is having with his disciples. If you look at your Bibles in uh, chapter 13, it begins with this. He has the Lord's Supper, uh, which is the Passover meal before he is arrested and crucified. And uh, Jesus is giving this long teaching to his disciples. By this time in John 15, uh, Judas, of course, is left to betray him. So he's left with the 11. And this is words for people who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he talks about the role of the spirit in John chapter 14. And here, this passage of John 15 that uh, Bill read for us is this famous teaching about uh, the vineyard, the vine dresser. Uh, the vine and the branches. And then he goes on to our relationship with the world at the end of chapter 15. Chapter 16, the Holy Spirit has promised. What a great passage that is. We could spend a lot of time in these three or four chapters of the Gospel of John. But I've chosen today to go into this passage in John 15, 1 through 17. And we'll see how far we get because we can spend a lot of time here. In uh, If you were listening carefully, as Bill read this, you recognize that there was a lot of talk about fruit and about abiding, especially in verses 1 through 11. Fruit and abiding. And in the Old Testament, there's this whole imagery that comes forth about Israel being being the vineyard. And we're familiar with vineyards and with grapes because we're surrounded by them. If you drive to Wenatchee, you, of course, see the, all the vineyards, and you go almost any place in Washington State, and you will see vineyards and vines and grapes and fruit. And, and uh, so we have this picture around us, although it differs from what the first century Jewish people understood about vineyards. But in the Old Testament, frequently that metaphor is used of Israel, and it uh, talks about Israel being depicted as a vine transplanted from Egypt in the Exodus, and also being brought to the fertile soil of the promised land in Ezekiel 17. Also in Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah warns them about the vineyard being trampled. In other words, uh, the Assyrians and the Babylonians would carry off Israel, the vineyard, into captivity. In Isaiah 5, Isaiah has the great hope of promise that God will carefully and tend the fruit, and he cares for it. And then there's this issue of fruit that uh, is mentioned here in Jesus' teaching. In this passage, it occurs some eight times, as well as the word abiding, which occurs some ten times. So the Apostle John is being very repetitive, and he's making an emphasis as he records Jesus' words. Jesus' teaching about fruit and abiding and these vineyards. And uh, fruit in Scripture is used variously in different ways as a metaphor to describe truth that God is conveying. Uh, Figuratively, we think of fruit as uh, the issue of our physical bodies in the sense of children. That's one uh, thing, or descendants in Genesis 30 and elsewhere. Fruit is often indicates thoughts that are close to our words. In other words, our words are the fruit of our thinking. They spring forth from our thinking. And the fruit is the results of the Spirit's working in the lives of believers in Galatians chapter 5. It's manifested in how we live out our life. That's called fruit. Also in Philippians and James, he talks about the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of repentance in Matthew 3, the fruit of light, Ephesians 5. They're expressions of righteousness, repentance, and moral purity. That is fruit in our lives. And Jesus cautioned his hearers about false prophets who could be identified by the fruit they produced. Uh, He told them just to look at their lives and what qualities are manifested in false teachers. That will identify them. That's a type of fruit. Jesus also warned of the necessity of bearing fruit that was compatible with citizenship in the kingdom of God in Romans 1, or excuse me, in Isaiah 3 and John 4. It's also used as a picture of Christian converts, those who accept Jesus as their Savior. And so in a sense, if you're a Christian here today, you are... A product or a fruit of those things, Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 16. Isaiah 5 talks about the fruit being God's exercise of justice and righteousness. And so we come to this passage today, and this passage about the vine dresser, the vine, and the branches, and the fruit, and abiding, all answers a question that the disciples were undoubtedly asking, which began in chapter 14, verse 12. Look at your copy of God's word. Chapter 14, verse 12, Jesus is teaching. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also and greater works than these will he do because I go to the father. And the automatic question by the disciples would be, how is this going to happen? And Jesus is answering it here. And he gives us the answer of the fundamental issue of the bedrock of a meaningful life the bedrock of a meaningful life. And again, he goes back to the metaphor of the vineyard. Now, I understand. I don't know much about vineyards. I understand that it's called viticulture, and it is an arm of horticulture. And those of you, we have a grapevine in our backyard, and it's quite large now. It's been there for almost 20 years. I do understand it takes pruning, and it takes some care to receive a crop of grapes. So, The bedrock of a meaningful life we find in verses 1 through 11. And verses 1 through 2 2 answers the question, how do I have a, 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 a meaningful life? How do I have a life that's not wasted in that sense? And this is the cause of a meaningful life. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. I am the true vine. Here is one of those great I am statements by Jesus, which echoes back to Exodus chapter 3, where God told Moses, I am that I am. And of course, for the Jewish listener in the first century, they understood very clearly that Jesus was claiming equality with God. When he said, I am, and here he uses this metaphor of the true vine. I am the true vine because Israel was called throughout the Old Testament to be the vineyard. They were to be the vine that glorified God, that spread all over the world, that testified to its neighbors, and yet Israel had failed in that. In fact, by now, in the Gospels, Israel had rejected Jesus as the Messiah. That occurred when the religious leadership of Israel attributed Jesus' miracles to Beelzebub, to Satan. That was the official rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. And from that point on, he turns his attention away from Israel and to the disciples because he's preparing for the church age. And so Jesus here in chapter 15 is teaching his disciples, and he's using this metaphor of the vineyard, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. Now, this is a hotly contested passage of Scripture. Let me say that right up front. Because if you go down to verse 6 in this passage, you will see that it reads, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch, dries up, they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. There are basically three positions on this. Let me just very quickly line them out. If you are of a Calvinistic persuasion, that means an adherent of John Calvin's theology, which would be Reformed churches, Presbyterian churches, and many, many others, you see this as people who profess Christianity but are not truly believers, okay? That's the first position, and they have arguments for that. <clears throat> this, on the other end of the spectrum is the Arminian position, Jacob Arminius, not to go into a lot of history, uh, had a theology which said you could lose your salvation. And Arminianism is uh, very clear in Methodist churches, uh, Nazarene churches, uh, Pentecostal churches. But in that way, they would say that these are believers in this passage that Jesus is talking about, but they lose their salvation. I believe both of those, I believe this passage teaches that both of those are wrong. Positions on this and that there this is a this is a a position about fellowship this is not about justification our initial salvation this is about sanctification our ongoing relationship with Jesus Christ, and this is very important to understand this is not about Christians or people who say they're Christians who are not Christians. This is not about Christians losing their salvation. This is about our walk with Jesus Christ. That's why he uses the word abide 10 times here. Abide means to remain. means you already have a relationship, but your fellowship is what needs to remain. And so the bedrock of a meaningful life is the fact that we need to understand that Jesus is the true vine, and the Father is the vine dresser. This is about communion with Christ, not union with Christ. You need to understand that difference. Uh, you may have heard about the man who, through a mail order company on the Internet, probably Amazon Prime, he sent for a kit, uh, so he uh, plans, so he could build a birdhouse. And instead of sending him the right plans for a birdhouse, they sent him plans for a sailboat. And uh, he tried to put it together, but it just wouldn't work, and he uh, couldn't figure out what kind of bird was going to live in this kind of a birdhouse. So he sent an email back to Amazon Prime and the Ports people, and they wrote a letter of apology and added this postscript. If you think it was difficult for you, you should have seen the man who got your plans trying to sail a birdhouse, You know, a lot of people are trying to operate on the plans of Christ when they aren't even Christian or when they don't understand the basic premise of what Jesus is teaching here. Make sure you understand the position about what Christ is calling us to before you try to apply the principles. And so if we look at verse 2, you know, we know Jesus is the vine, the Father is the vine dresser, so this is a God thing, this metaphor that he's using. And he says in verse 2 uh, that every branch in me that does not bear fruit, fruit, he takes away. Now, this is a New American Standard translation here, but that word takes away is translated, can be translated lifted up. And this is where the viticulture comes in to understand growing grapes in the first century. It wasn't until about 70 years after this was written that the Romans devised a way that grapevines would grow on lattices up off the ground. Before that, they would let the vines lay on the ground. And if you have grapes at your house, you know what happens when the vine lays on the ground. It puts out little shoots and starts more plants. Well, the vine dresser would come and he would lift up Those vines that were laying on the ground, not take them away, but lift them up so that they would be up off the ground and they would depend upon their health and vitality from the, the vine itself. These branches would be lifted up and set up on sticks or rocks or blocks so that they could produce good fruit. Because if you leave the vine laying on the ground and it puts the shoots in, there's not enough water, there's not enough nutrients, and whatever grapes are produced are called sour grapes. That's where that term comes from. And yet, he lifts them up, this vine dresser, and that's what that word means. And he says, when I lift them up, I take away every branch that bears fruit, and he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. That word prune is the same word that's used later in verse Three, where he tells the disciples, you are already clean, that's that word pruned, because of the word I have spoken to you. So in other words, this is all metaphor. This is figures of speech. He's using a vineyard to illustrate to the believer what it means to abide in the vine. And this is a Christ speaking. These are lifted up The branches are pruned. The vine dresser in the first century Palestine would go through and lift up the branches and put them on rocks or sticks, and then he would clean the leaves off because the dust would blow in and stick to the leaves, and he would clean everything up because he wanted a great crop of fruit. By pruning this, the father prunes these branches that are bearing fruit, that they may bear more fruit. A wise and holy father, and we need to understand this, a wise and holy father removes all the useless things that would sap the energy and strength out of the branch that keeps it from bearing more fruit. Constant pruning is necessary. If you were to come over to my backyard, you would see this, uh, this grape vine that covers the back fence and comes up the side fence, and every year Don prunes it, and we, we carry those away, but it's pruned so it'll be healthy. And constant pruning is necessary if you want fruit. Such, uh, we could conclude then that the Father removes the useless and harmful things from our lives. It could include disciplining us out of Hebrews chapter 12, bringing into our lives physical limitations, allowing material reverses and losses, Hebrews 10, permitting family losses, James 1, exposing us to unjustified persecution, 1 Peter 4, Whatever it takes, the vine dresser who is absolutely holy and wise and makes no mistakes does that in order that we may bear more fruit. We had an example of that uh, by Alice's own testimony. She said it wasn't until she got sick and had some very great challenges in her lives that she got serious about this. I so appreciated that. I so appreciated what she said. The word is that same root word that's translated clean in verse 3 where he assures, he assures the disciples that they are already being pruned. They are believers. Donald Gray Barnhouse, who was a great preacher and commentator, relates the following about an unusual grapevine. Uh, He writes that in Hampton Court near London, England, there is a grapevine behind glass that is about uh, 1,000 years old and has one root, That is at least two feet thick. Some of the branches are over 200 feet long. Because of skillful cutting and pruning, the vine produces several tons of grapes each year. Even though some of the smaller branches are 200 feet from the main stem, they bear much fruit because they are joined to the vine and allow the life of the vine to flow through them. Jesus is the vine. We are the branches. When we need pruning, the goal is always more fruit. And so that's the cause of a meaningful life. The conditions of a meaningful life we find in verses 3 through 6. Notice again verse 3. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine so you that you cannot unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. And so Jesus Christ tells us that there is conditions for a meaningful life. Jesus is addressing those who are believers, where he says, in me. You know, unbelievers are not in Christ. Only believers are in Christ. Abiding can be translated, I think if you use the NIV, it says, remaining with. The key is fruitfulness when we remain Abide occurs some 118 times in the New Testament, and John uses it 24 times in his gospel. So it's a very familiar word that illustrates how we live with him. It's about fellowship. In 1 John, it's about fellowship. Uh, If we don't abide, it results in temporal judgment and loss of rewards. One thing to understand, according to viticulture, is there is pruning that is done before the fruit season and the spring—it's those little shoots, those suckers that come out that want to find a place to root. And so they would trim those off so that the fruit, or so that the vine would be healthy, the branches would be healthy. But here in verse six, it's talking about temporal judgment. It is—he's using the issue of fall pruning. Uh, in verse six, look again at verse six. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. You don't do that in the spring before the fruit season because it's only these little suckers and little shoots that are coming out if it's been pruned correctly. But the fall pruning is when you cut away the woody stems and the things that uh, are not going to be productive to the vine itself. And so he's using this is the fact that not abiding in Christ has serious consequences. The person is cast out as a branch, indicating loss of fellowship. We believe here very firmly in the security of the believer. The believer is secure in their profession of faith, and security is given to us by God declared in his word. Whether we believe it or not, his word declares it. And so when we have loss of fellowship, that's not loss of salvation. I've illustrated it many times. My father, my biological father, and I had a falling out when I was in college. And our fellowship was broken, but our relationship was secure. Nothing was going to change the DNA. He was always my father. I was always his son. And if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the DNA is set. And it's not dependent upon us. It's dependent upon the blood of Christ, what he has done for us. And so we are secure, but we can be out of fellowship. Our sin causes us to be out of fellowship. And if we are not abiding in Christ, remaining in him, going our own way, following the world's ways, there'll be a loss of fellowship. The person is withered up. It's indicated here it's a loss of vitality. Our sin, just like David, when he sinned with Bathsheba, his, his, his bones dried up. He said he was trying to describe how he felt. And a person is burned, indicating a loss of reward. Burned here is not the hellfire that the Bible talks about. It is a figure uh, sim- symbolic of fiery trials, 1 Timothy ch- or 1 Peter chapter 1, or the judgment seat of Christ in 1 Corinthians 3, where it says our works will be judged, and some are wood, hay, and stubble, and will be burned up. That is what he is talking about. Not our salvation, but our works, our, our lack of Uh, loss of reward, what God is going to do for us. And it actually produces spiritual disaster. Some commentators believe that he's speaking about physical death. If a believer is out of fellowship long enough, they can die physically. He can take them home uh, whenever he wants. Uh, So we need to trust in what Jesus Christ is doing, and we need to abide in him. If we were to go to San Francisco, and these... uh, surprisingly, you know, you think of the West Coast and the uh, the San Andreas Fault and the fear of earthquakes and the big Oakland earthquake. I'm told, now I did not check this out on Snopes or anything, but I'm told that the safest place in an earthquake to be is in the middle of the Golden Gate Bridge. Now, I don't know. It, does, it sounds counterintuitive to me, but yet it tells us here, one thing I read was that The Golden Gate Bridge will withstand probably a 9.0 on the Richter scale. It's a magnificent structure. It will not fall for two reasons. One, it's flexible, and it'll sway. And another reason it stands is because it's a marvel of cantilevered suspension and construction. Every bit of concrete, all of the pavement, every bit of steel in the entire bridge, all of it relates one piece to another. Every piece of metal in the bridge relates to the two gigantic cables that finally come to two great piers that go down in the bedrock and two anchors out on each side. That's the genius, this writer says, of the suspension bridge. Every single piece of metal, every single piece of concrete is preoccupied with its foundation. And it's satisfied with the foundation. You don't see a big, huge cable going from the top of the towers of the bridge over to the Transamerica Tower downtown or over to the redwood trees in Marin County. You don't have that. They decided to put their trust in the pure living rock and those great piers that go down into a meaningful life is anchored foundationally in Jesus Christ, the rock of our salvation. In verses 7 through 11, there are five consequences of an abiding life. Look at verse 7 with me. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is confidence in prayer. There are those times where we lack great confidence because of things that come into our life. But because we are abiding in Christ, we can have confidence because Christ will guide our thoughts. He will give us the desires of our hearts. And because Christ is in control in his sovereignty, we can have confidence in prayer. Secondly, in verse 8, my father is glorified by this that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. There is glorification of the father. Fruit bearing is an evidence of discipleship. It's a common outworking. If you're a branch on a grapevine, your common outworking is going to be to produce grapes. It'll be produced through you. And then in verses 9 and 10, you will experience love relationships. Look at verse 9. Just as the father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. And just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love, there is this experience of a love relationship. As Alice mentioned, that she could go, she knew this intuitively, and she was told this. At any time I want to talk to Jesus, I can talk to Jesus. Why would Jesus listen to us? Because he loves us. We are the object of his affection. He died for us. And in verse 11, we will experience complete joy. These things I have spoken to you that, you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. And this is unique to the Gospel of John. He talks about joy, that Jesus talks about this, that our joy would be made full. Even in the midst of difficult circumstances, adversity, and challenges that each one of us face, there can be great joy because of what Christ has done. And then elsewhere, uh, we will have uh, the fifth consequence of an abiding life is effective evangelism, in other words, effective outreach. Back in 1335, just a page back there, Jesus uh, <clears throat> excuse me, says there, uh, by this all men will know that you are d- my disciples if you have love for one another. And then in uh, 158, my father is glorified by this that you bear much fruit. And so there is effective evangelism in that. There are some things about living and abiding in the Christian life. There are questions that beg to be answered, no matter what your role and station in life is, whether you're in your 20s, your teens, your 20s, or your 80s, wherever you are in life, it doesn't mean that you stop abiding or that you can't abide. There are things, there are dilemmas to be overcome. There are points and places for you in this life. There are gaps to be filled, and the challenges is God has placed you where you are at, nobody else. I'm not in your home or your neighborhood or your school or your workplace, just you. There are nobody else to take that. There's a purpose for your being here, and that goes back to this whole issue of living a meaningful life. You are meant to answer something, solve something, provide something, lead something, discover something, compose something, write something, say something translate something, interpret something, sing something, create something, teach something, preach something, bear something, overcome something, and in doing so, you improve the lives of others under the power of God and for the glory of God as you are there. That's the first point of this sermon. And I stand here before you today that today you've just heard a one-point sermon. Okay? The bedrock of a meaningful life. Now, on your bulletin outline, if you were reading that, there are five marks of a meaningful life, verses 12 through 17. And that is your assignment this week, that you go through verses 12 through 17 and see if you can pick out the five marks of a meaningful life. They're there for you, and you may come up with more than that. That's all I saw, but you may come up with more than that, but uh, that's your assignment for this, this week as you go through that. And we'll touch base about that next week. And so you just have had a one-point sermon. And now this week, you get to finish it by looking up the five marks of a meaningful life in verses 12 through 17. One time, uh, when we lived in Dallas, we had a good friend named Dee. And we were over at her house one evening, and she was hosting a missionary lady from The Sudan. She had ministered in the Sudan for some 20 years. Uh, She was unmarried and she'd been there by herself with a mission agency and uh, in Bible translation as well as evangelistic work. And she was just very personable. And I remember she related some fascinating accounts of her ministry among the people of the Sudan, Uh, including this story she told that every evening when it would get dark, uh, the people uh, of Sudan in the village she was living in. She would have oil lamps burning in her, her screened-in house. They didn't need windows, of course. It's so warm there, but her house was screened in. Oil, oil lamps would be burning, and insects would come and cling to the screen in a desperate attempt to get to the light and uh, that were burning brightly in her house. And she said the children of the village would come running over and to on her porch, and they would use their hands to scoop the insects off the screen and into their mouths because that was about the only protein they were getting was when they could get insects. Those African insects provided a sizable portion of the protein for those children's diets. And uh, this lady missionary went on to talk about the the immense wealth that we in this country have and the, the things we enjoy, the blessings of abundance, And yet the danger of being spiritually impoverished because we are deflected from what what is a really meaningful life as a nation. This gracious, I'll never forget it, this lady stated that ultimately people are the only things that matter on earth. They are eternal. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, for this passage reminding us the foundation of a meaningful life.